1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
2: Hello, and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. Matthew Galt has flown away. On this show, we talk a lot about wars and weapons and such. We talk about geopolitics and strategy, but we rarely talk about the human cost of those fights. Today, we're changing that in the case of Ukraine. We're going to talk about humanitarian efforts and what's happening to people, not just soldiers on the ground. Joining us are Britta Elvanger, and she works for an organization called For Peace. And we also have Nelly Asayeva of Helping to Leave, which, by the way, is just absolutely a fascinating group, and uh, we'll find out about them very soon. So, Hi.
0: Hello. Hello.
2: <laughs> so uh, let's see. If your organizations are very different, and so, or at least their aims seem to be. Uh, Britta, would you mind uh, starting and just sort of tell us what your group does and uh, what it's all about?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think it reflects well your intro about like the human cost of the war. War Peace sort of started in Ukraine. I was already living in Ukraine um, as a master's student in Kiev in the anti-corruption program at Kyiv Mahila Academy. And immediately once the war started, you know, for anyone who's outside of Ukraine, you read these headlines, Russia's invaded. But yeah, the point is that this was like a personally felt and personalized war. This is a family war. And so if you were in Ukraine amongst Ukrainians, like what that meant was my, my, like my graduate cohort had a student who watched the tanks drive through her town in Luhansk. Um, My friends were immediately the ones who were called up to defend their hometowns. And so like this war was very personal and um, it was very, very human in the sense that like, it was all that we saw was ordinary people responding to this invasion and so it sort of just naturally and organically grew from that. Um, I just it really did start from like my graduate cohort. We just had lists of like this is what is needed here, um, whether it was Pokrovsk Donetsk or whether it was down in Mariupol or whether it was um, you know in Kiev. And so it was very much just responding to what local people were saying um, and how locals were responding to this invasion. And that quickly then developed into, yeah, you're helping people who are internally displaced. You're helping people who are leaving the country. Um, you're helping, people, you know, men who all of a sudden are soldiers. Um, but it just, we do, we have a lot of different directions, whether it's medical, frontline with soldiers, frontline with um, civilians. But it just like happens naturally because that's how Ukrainians, they're, they're, every Ukrainian is balancing all of that at once.
2: So. so what uh what kind of aid do you actually like literally provide? I mean, are you sending okay. food? Um and if uh, you're sending food, where are you sending the food to? That you know, that kind of thing.
0: Okay. Um so we have medical aid sort of ranges from um the individual first aid kits that each soldier needs to providing um more extensive surgical equipment to frontline field hospitals, stabilization centers. And then we also support like doctors in more established trauma clinics with necessary surgical equipment. Um, or even just like, you know, extra, um, what are they called? Like sanitary, um, consumables. Um, with frontline soldier help, it's anything from shoes to clothes to this iPad kits to body armor, helmets, drones. Um, more recently, one of our big projects is supporting a Kiev based engineer group that is making, um, signal amplifier stations for those drones. Because one of the top things that every Ukrainian is always fundraising for is drones. They, um, you know, they get taken from Russians have the advantage with radio electronic warfare. And so they sort of jam drones or they just get destroyed. So drones are the number one thing everyone's fundraising for. They're very expensive. But if you could just get the signal amplifier station out with a drone team, then um, it drastically reduces the attrition rate of the drone. And it also, more importantly, saves the life of the drone operator um, because they don't have no longer have to operate in exposed open places. Um, So that's sort of the range of I mean, we've we've provided like cranes to mechanized units so they can pick up the tanks that. Western countries are donating and then kind of try to uh, save what parts they can. Um, you, it, it just ranges, whatever is like the no, most current need we're getting. Um, and then with civilians on the front line, our big project is clean water. Um, we've been providing water filters uh, along the entire front line up from, you know, Sumi down to Herson since the beginning of the invasion. And um, we have also done some food, but food is usually pretty well covered by bigger international aid groups. And then the main one, though, that we work with with civilians um, in recently liberated territories is they're not waiting for reconstruction. They're already doing it now, even in Herson after the recent, you know, the Cahoka Dam destruction. Like the number one request that people are asking for is building materials. So uh, it's an interesting contrast right now in London at the Chatham house, there's this two day conference for reconstruction. Um, but all of our partners along the, you know, the gray zone or liberated areas, they're, they're doing reconstruction now on their own. Like they're taking that burden on themselves. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, even when it comes to like providing new water pipelines, because obviously places got shelled, the water pipelines were destroyed. They were old anyway, Um or you know, providing the equipment for the school so they can start the school up again. Uh, so there's a lot of yeah. So it goes into like educational support, um, and I think that that covers. I'm trying to think if there's other ones.
2: That's oh. a hell of a list.
0: <laughs> we provided like tractors to to liberated areas um, so that they could start. You know, well this was over the winter, but you know there was the big scare of, and it was a very legitimate scare, but. Energy crisis, blackouts. Very little um, centralized. Ukraine has a centralized heating system, so that was out for a lot of those villages. Um, and so, but the the other risk was these liberated areas. You can't go into the forest anymore to collect your own wood because they need to still demine these areas. And people that were going to collect their wood were dying. And so, we came together with a couple of the ramadas down by Kherson, and they're like, "If we could just control that." by at least picking up with the tractor and some like wood chip machines, and we can just make smaller amounts of wood, but we're sort of um, safely managing this for our honomadas, then we can save lives and also provide like almost a recyclable type of heating. This was, you know, this was junk pieces of twigs that they were then making into firewood for the locals. So that was one of the projects that we did. Um, not we did that we supported Ukrainians in doing, because they're, they're like, they're just unbelievable. They they don't stop. <laughs>
2: Uh, no. Well, speaking of unbelievable people, uh, Nellie, <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about uh, sort of the same thing. Uh, your organization is actually seems very specific, uh, at least the name is, Helping to Leave. Could you tell me what your group does and how long you've been doing it and just sort of, you know, background uh, so people know who you are?
1: Yeah. So uh, our organization was started on, April, on February twenty fourth, in twenty twenty two. It was started with the Telegram Telegram chat where people uh, were trying to contact each other, people who knew each other. They were they were from different cities. Uh, they were discussing how they can be evacuated or just escape the Russian invasion. And those were people who were. In Kiev or in other cities, they were next to Kiev and it was like the main target at that moment. Uh, Later, we started to receive um, messages from people who were in the temporarily occupied territories. Uh, We were searching for the ways to help them to get out from there. Because, you know, uh, there's a lot of information that you can find uh, just scrolling different Telegram groups, just watching what people are posting because someone tried to get out from this way. It didn't work. They tried another way. It worked. So they're sharing the experience. So, yeah, this is how we started. And um, in uh, March last year, we've got a Telegram bot. We started to receive uh, official Uh, request for evacuation and we like our organization was officially um, was officially registered in uh, April yeah it was April last year it was April 25th last year Um, I think one of the most difficult things that uh, you're facing is when someone from the temporary occupied territory is calling you when they are in desperate they don't know where to go they they just Sometimes uh, people have money, they have a car to escape, but they are in the state of mind where they cannot just uh, understand what to do. They just need some kind of support. And sometimes we provide just the information uh, for people to be evacuated, especially if we're speaking about the temporary occupied territories right now, because uh, till uh, December last year, it was the direct way from the temporary occupied territory to the territory that is under Ukrainian control. Right now, it is totally closed. And the only way is to go to Russia. We, Of course, we do not recommend people to go to Russia or Crimea because um, there is no war, but it's still not safe for Ukrainians. Uh, so in, in actually March last year, we started to receive um, messages from people who were telling us that they are in russia so at first we were surprised because like okay like the war is in ukraine and here are ukrainians who are writing us from russia and those people they were uh, forcibly deported to russia uh, most of them they didn't have money they were in a shock they didn't know where to go and they were they were terrified Uh, one of the things that russians do especially in the beginning they were trying to do it many times Uh, they try to convince people that there is no way to get out russia from russia Uh, they say that we have cameras everywhere we're gonna follow you but actually it's not true because they don't even have these kind of resources Uh, but people are scared people are coming from bomb shelters Uh, from the totally destroyed cities and they just they just scared to go somewhere else and they need support and like sometimes money sometimes information sometimes we provide the psychological support we find uh, some organization that do this
2: so with the people in russia is the border between russia and ukraine Really, uh, does it have a lot of holes in it so that people can actually come back through? Or I just, I guess in my mind, I would have thought that at this point, everything is pretty you know, militarized and mm-hmm. uh, checkpoints would be blocked.
1: So if you're speaking about the way from the temporary occupied territories to Russia, they just forcibly deported through the checkpoints. Though they call like they call Mariupol and other cities uh, are, they say it's Russia, but still there is a checkpoint, or like many of them because they need to check if you are the person who, uh, who they would like to see in Russia or maybe you're gonna do something that's um, like uh, I don't know, <laughs> you will try sabotage. to harm their military. Yes, some yep. kind of this, or sometimes they just don't people go to Russia if. They understand that these people want to escape Russia after that. They just these people have pro-Ukrainian position. And if somehow they will show it, or just a soldier or the body control guy will will feel this way, they can just block the, the way to Russia for this person. And they say you you need to stay um, here until the end of the special military operation. Right. And if we're talking about the wave. From Russia to Ukraine, Uh, currently we have one checkpoint uh, where people can directly go from there to Ukraine.
2: Okay, that's still uh, that's still interesting. Um, Is there a lot of corruption and bribery for you know to get people around to help them move? Um, Does that you mean
1: for us, like for uh, for organization? Well, actually, we just uh, normally, uh, if the person is healthy, if they have uh, all the documents or at least some of their documents, uh, we just buy them tickets and they escape. Mm-hmm. If they need, if they have some special needs, it could be kids who were forcibly deported, or there were kids uh, from the temporary occupied territories where uh, they their parents were told, like, yeah, it's nice that your kids will go for a summer camp to Crimea. It's warm there, it's nice there. Of course, many parents, like they see that other parents, they sent their kids and then kids later, kids came back and they feel like, okay, it could be a chance for my child to have a one or two weeks outside of the war. And they agreed. But then uh, the territory was deoccupied by Ukrainian army and Russian says, we cannot give your kids back. There is no way
2: right and I mean there are lots of stories about how the children's identity is being taken away from them and they're being raised in Russia by Russians yeah and, and yes, that's something that's that, that you've been seeing yeah yes okay you
1: see it, we, we cannot speak of about all the cases because um, it can it can like harm those people who are in Russia right now. Yeah, there are a lot of cases where teenage kids, uh, they like they are old enough to understand what's going on. They are old enough to understand what they want. Do they want to stay in Russia or they want to go back to Ukraine? But uh, in some cases, they are not allowed.
2: So they are people communicating. And actually, Britta, I was sort of wondering also for you. Um People are using Telegram uh, as the main way to communicate uh, with each other or uh, it's or It's one what? of the
1: ways, yeah. And it's actually when they uh, contact us by our Telegram bot, it's safe for them because it, it, like, it doesn't save your cash. It's like uh, no one can check what were you doing, uh, what were you texting on the bot. And like you're kind of safe if they won't find any information.
2: And so, uh Prida, what does your group do?
0: Um, we're a bit more chaotic with just whatever the group that we're working with would they use, but I like the fun anecdote is I met Nelly through um her, their telegram bot um and part of what Nellie maybe didn't explain is or didn't add to what all she also does is because they already had all these amazing contacts and a long established um network in the Kherson region because of all the evacuations they've been doing this whole year her group became not only like a center central place for evacuation work this past um you know week since the Kakhovka dam was exploded but it also became like a crucial starting platform for anybody who wanted to do direct humanitarian aid in the region Um, I, our partners that also do medical evacuations out of Herson area and occupied areas, they were the ones who put me in touch with Nelly's group. And so I joined their telegram chats and it was just unbelievable how they were coordinating things. Like, I don't know how they do it on telegram, but they're like automatically updating. They created these Excel sheets of like very detailed, like this is the person to contact in this village. They're saying that they need this, 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 you know, they need water, they need this medication, they need this building material. And then they're also tracking, like, this organization has already said that they're going to bring this. So this is a still the part that needs to be fulfilled. Like, that's the kind of detail that Nelly's network is doing. And that's not even with evacuations. That's just for like immediate post-catastrophe, you know, relief aid in the region. And um, I just think. Thousands of people in Ukraine, when they wanted to know how to help in Kherson, they were using Nelly's te- Telegram bots. And um, not just the bots, but there's like more interactive groups that they set up this past week for evacuation help, for humanitarian aid help. Um, so, yeah, I do. Telegram is a pretty important baseline. And then from there, you you quickly move and you just try to make the person to person contact with someone.
2: Yeah, I, I never quite understand. I'm maybe... You know, someday someone will tell me why cell you know cell phone networks are still up and running. <laughs> and I mean, I know some of it has to do with Starlink, but I, you know, I, I would have thought, okay, first thing we do is take out you know the, all the cell phones. But everybody's, it seems like you can get and you can call anybody anywhere still. Is has that, that been your experience?
1: No, actually, it it depends on the area and it depends on the probably. What the Russian military expect? Because if we were talking about uh, the Kharkiv region be- before it was deoccupied, um, people like the the cell phones, everything was blocked. Sometimes they were taking your cell phones. Sometimes just they just like they they didn't have they like did they destroyed all the towers. All so the towers. there was almost yeah almost no way to to get the network. But there was a hill. Uh, At some point, people were going up to that hill to reach any kind of uh, contact, any kind of network, and try to call their relatives. And even in these situations, uh, Russians were trying to shoot those people who were trying to do this. Oh, wow. But even in these circumstances, we were helping people to be evacuated. We were telling them, like, if we can reach one person in one city, in one area... We asked them because we we already had the addresses where uh, relatives were telling us that we have relatives in this area. We want them to be evacuated. Some of those people were um, like some of them were children. Some of them were disabled and they needed special treatment. Uh, so we, we were asking, we, we caught one person, we asked them to, to speak to everyone and to find all the people who may want to evacuate, be evacuated. And then we asked them to come to the certain place at certain times. And like they were coming. And that's how they were sal- saving themselves.
2: Uh, actually, there's a question I should have asked earlier. Where do you evacuate people to? What's considered you know safe? Where, where do refugees go?
1: It depends on what they want, but a lot of people, they want to go to the territory that is under Ukrainian control. Um, We always uh, ask them if they have a place to stay. If they don't, we can uh, find some shelters. In some cases, when people are wounded or they have no one in the territory that is under Ukrainian control, we can... Offer offered them other options like going to Europe because there are a lot of countries who are accepting refugees and providing different
0: kinds of help. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. Okay. So, uh, Britta, new question uh, for you. What happened after the dam was uh, exploded? I mean, I guess no one – I mean, the New York Times uh, just did a big thing looking at how the dam exploded and uh, why it must have happened from internally and why the Russians must have done it. But, okay. So, I guess everybody's also assuming the Russians did it anyway. Uh, how – has uh, the situation changed? I mean, how many people do you have any idea how many people were affected?
0: Um, I mean, in the thousands, Nellie probably would know better numbers, but I think about almost under 2000 were evacuated. Nellie, is that right?
1: If you speak about the territory that is under Ukrainian control, that probably and also almost the same number, I guess, for the territory that is under uh, under Russian control right now.
0: I think the stark like numbers that are coming out now is the attempt to tally deaths. Um, So Mm -hmm. as I understand, as as I last saw, it's been recorded that seventeen died on in Ukraine-controlled territory of Kherson versus. 500 plus uncounted that we really will never know how many died um, under Russian occupation. But I think that that's a pretty, I, I honestly was pretty surprised to find out that so few had been killed on um, the territory where Ukraine was able to quickly respond. And again, like so much of that was the result of volunteer networks, like Nelly's, um, who were coordinating a lot of people and directing people where to go and pick up people and find people.
2: No, that's really remarkable. I would have thought, you know, I'm from thousands of miles away. It sounded like the death toll would have been just horrendous. Not that 17 people is okay, but, um, you know, it sounded like it'd be tens of thousands of people, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, so, do you guys, uh, either of you, like, do you have people working who are literally uh, like on the front lines? And if people are in immediate danger, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with what people, um, you know, who are where you know that you're putting them in danger in a way Um, in order to help other people? How do you deal with that?
0: For me in particular, I don't ever ask anyone to go. So um, okay. it is definitely if somebody is going, then they tell me what they need and we help them do it. But we're certainly not the ones putting people out there. Okay. Um, or I, you know, wherever I go, then I go. But um, that's sort of our line with that is definitely we're not directing where people go.
2: Okay. Okay.
0: But Nelly. A- also- Mm-hmm.
1: yeah i would also like to add that a lot of people who are helping uh especially on the temporary occupied territories especially right now uh those are people who live there they just helping helping their neighbors we can see the, uh, the same situation that happens in Herson because like i think you saw those stories when elderly women they were saying like they could be drowned in in like 30 minutes because they were sleeping or they just like They just couldn't help themselves because they can properly walk. Uh, And they were telling that their neighbors just ran into their houses, yelled them that uh, you need to be evacuated and just immediately take them away. The same situation is happening in the temporary occupied territories, but it's a little bit, no, it's much worse because even those people who have boats, uh, those boats can be taken. Like Russian military, they see that people are... Uh, going to rescue someone or just they see the person on the boat they just they can take the boat Mm -hmm. Uh, they see people who are uh, on the rooftops they they don't know what sometimes they don't know what to do because they were not ready for these things of course as well and in many cases they just don't care they uh they don't allow people to leave those territories like for for a couple of days for the first days no one could, like, just few people could escape. The volunteers were gathering the information uh, when there were uh, someone on the territory who were saying that, I have a boat, I can help. We were trying to get the contacts or, like, the addresses and put them on the map of those people who, you know, even if the person is on the rooftop, it doesn't mean that you will see them or hear them. So, uh, when they were, like, uh, children elderly people or like anyone who who needs an immediate help we were trying to to tell people like if you can you can go this way you can go to this address because of course people local people they know these addresses they don't need a sign to to find the street Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and in other ways when we were occupied when we were evacuating from the Kharkiv region or any other territory uh volunteers they just want to go there and want to help we of course we also we don't encourage anyone like we don't force anyone to go we don't try to oh, find people I, i'm
2: sorry i didn't mean like anybody is forcing no, no
1: no yeah yeah of course of course i mean like they know what they do maybe sometimes they don't understand what exactly they're gonna face because when it's like your first trip you never know you just you think that you know what is this but you, you don't and uh there were. Cases um, with our volunteers, especially in the Pecheneyid Dam in Kharkiv region, um, when especially if there is a um, disabled person who cannot walk, the volunteers they had to walk um, more, like they they had to go towards the Ukraine, uh, towards the Russian army, uh, to pick up that person. And in these cases, some of the volunteers were kidnapped, and right. after that they were tortured. And some of them were able to escape. We were trying to find them. Even the, temp- the territory was occupied. So, like, even the Russians at that moment, they say, okay, like, we give you green light. This is the day when you can be evacuated. They let people go and they start to shoot them. Yeah. So, like, this is how, how, how they work.
0: I just yeah. also wanted to emphasize what Nelly said. I, I think a really crucial element of humanitarian relief in Ukraine is less often like going somewhere, but knowing people who are already there, that's pretty Hmm. critical. And I think that that's, um, like that is the reason why the Ukrainian like response is so fast and so effective. Like she was saying, like, you're not telling, you're not working through intermediaries. You don't necessarily have to like explain where to go. You're working with people who have, who have local knowledge and can command this this uh, environment. And really all that you need to do is know those people and then just help them in the way that they need to be helped to do what they can uniquely do because it's their home. Um, and you know, that's like their home in terms of like it's their street, it's their village, but they really do command unique knowledge and it's not it's less about having to swoop in and, and save yeah. someone, it, it's just they're they're doing it and they just need help and maybe a little bit of. Sort of like that last mile coordination. But
2: I think that's where my dumb question comes from, because what I'm used to thinking about when you talk about refugees are pictures of camps being set up by the U.N. and other organizations, uh, you know, and people literally streaming over borders by the tens of thousands. And um, it's really sounds like Ukraine is is just a different uh, situation.
0: I really, I mean, I have never had this experience before. Ukraine was my first experience. And like the only reason I'm doing this is precisely because like it was just the environment I was in and everybody's doing this. Like it's not, everybody is a volunteer. Um, everybody's responding. You know, like even my law professor, when the, <laughs> when the dam exploded, like he just wrote to us all like, hey, my grandparents' old little village home is open. Let me know if you need somebody to come stay there who's evacuating out. Um, so that's like this. It's it's super, super tight social networks of every, you know, and then the power of what that looks like when it's the entire country doing it. Um, and then you extend that into, you know, what Nelly said, like they're taking people out of Ukraine and then bringing them, helping them relocate across Europe. But that's also being largely coordinated by Ukrainians who are living abroad. And so there's just, you know, it's not just an in-country response, but it extends across Europe into the States. Um, it, it It is really unbelievable what the Ukrainian, I would consider like the Ukrainian social network is doing just amongst themselves.
2: Yeah, I wonder if, uh, you know, how that would work in other countries. Uh, but Ukraine seems like a, a interesting case, no matter what. Um. If we could talk for a second about what people are facing in terms of the Russian military. I mean, you know, there are reports everywhere of atrocities being carried out by the Russians. Is that what if either of you, you know, don't feel qualified to talk about it? But I'm just wondering if that's what people who you are talking to are also seeing.
0: Yes. And I think what's um the degree to which everybody in Ukraine is affected and carrying that kind of trauma, like everybody has it. And it comes out in casual conversations almost because nobody, on one hand, we're trying to learn how to cope with it. And then no one knows how to cope with it. But like I was talking to Nelly yesterday, um, there's another volunteer that we worked with. And uh, he was a soldier. He was wounded last year in the counteroffensive. His leg was totally shattered from shrapnel. And so ever since then, though, he's still like, he, he's taken it upon himself to make sure that soldiers are okay in hospitals and then does whatever other, you know, he's just always active. And um, in preparing IFAT kits yesterday, he just, it wasn't casually said, but he just expressed, I'm taking a combat medic nurse to a therapy center in Lviv. She was under Russian captivity for three days. Um, you know, she was three days with, with 12 Russian soldiers. She's suicidal right now. Uh, we know that she was sexually abused and she's on suicide watch. And and like, you know, that was. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that I wouldn't have known that he was dealing with that as well, or that that was, you know, a degree of. Um, sexual torture. Um, that, that everyone is sort of it's on everyone's mind and it's present and it just co- sort of comes out in a conversation in which you're doing something totally different. Or another partner that we work with in liberated areas of Kharkiv, her, as Nelly described earlier, you know, soldiers were checking if you looked like you were pro-Ukrainian. And who knows what metric they decided that meant. But one of them on the border between Kharkiv and Russia, so this was a town that was very quickly under occupation and they just described, you know, they never let the children out because they didn't ever, they were so worried about having them deported or kidnapped. Um, the soldiers would check every house to see if there were weapons, or if there was any evidence that they were pro Ukrainian. Um, one of the teachers, the school teacher, her father was, they, they deemed him pro Ukrainian. Of course, all of them were pro Ukrainian. And and that's also part of it is like, well, not all of them, but um, the degree which, you know, solidarity has to come at the town level because if one town person Snitches and says, that woman has a son who's a soldier. That person is automatically going to be tortured, sent away. Um, and so this was actually a, a very beautiful case where this woman, the school teacher, her son was a soldier. And not a single person in the town ever told the Russian occupiers that. Um, but her dad was then identified as someone that was pro-Ukrainian. And he was sent, they knew that there was about 30 kilometers from their town where the torture chamber was. And he was sent there for a month. He has never told anybody what happened to him during that month. And he's one of the few that returned. So there are still many men from that town. They still don't know what happened to them. Um, And these are women that like I have sat with because we've decided that we want to fundraise a Starlink for them so they can start teaching school again. Like they're still living life and they're still pushing to start up online kindergarten. Um, and then you just learn slowly what all they're still dealing with. Um, but I would say that it is kind of all present and, and I it takes time for people to say it. And it also slips out sometimes in ways where you just have to be listening. And I'm sure Nelly has a lot more to share on that. Yeah. Just when when you were talking about
1: the, the experience that you've heard about, in your experience, I just recall the recent uh, situations that were happening in the temporary occupied territories while, while people were sitting on the rooftops. They were uh, waiting for the help to come. They saw Ukrainian military, Ukrainian soldiers who were coming on boats. They were trying to save, of course, it was like a huge risk, but they were trying to save people. And sometimes people on the rooftops, because they see <laughs> like they're standing higher and they can see more than the soldiers who were on the boats. People were yelling to them, like you need to go away. You need to hide because the Russian military is standing right there. Like we're going to be fine. We will wait here, but you need to be safe. So people, even in these circumstances, they are thinking about other people. And when we were calling the first days, um, when people just, they didn't even know, uh, will the water go up? Or, like, will everything be drawn? Like, what floor should they hide on? Even if they didn't have chance to go to to the city center, for example, in Oleszke. Because uh, the city center is, like, higher. It's, like, a bit on, up on a hill. And uh, it, it's more safe to stay there. Um, so, sometimes when we were calling to people, like, for me, my personal experience, I was talking to them. I was, like, I thought that maybe I, I dialed, dialed the wrong number. <laughs> Because the person is so calm, but they are just like, "Yeah, we're here." No, our house is totally destroyed. It's it's absolutely underwater. Even the rooftop. But we are uh, like three houses away from it. Uh, our neighbors have the like three fourths house and something like this. So like people are people are doing incredible job cooperating and and protecting each other.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think how do you guys get resources to help and how can people contribute from outside of Ukraine? Either one of you wants to start, please. Uh, <laughs> um,
0: I think the number one is Ukrainians. At times there's um, specific. Aid that's needed but in my experience, what Ukrainians need is money. Um, they need donations because they really know what to do with money and they stretch it so far. Um, like, I just I can't even imagine. I know what I do um, working with Ukrainians and seeing the budgets that they create. I mean, even, for example, Herson, Um, when I got the list through Nelly's network, who was working with evacuation teams of like this is, you know, we need 10 more of these boats. We need 20 more of these motors for the boats. We need waiters. No, no, no. Um, we could, you know, I quickly kind of tallied up a budget. And on that budget, it was it was already much better priced than what we would have done if it had been some bigger international org. But then on top of it, like, uh, we got to, they just, they, um, we got some of the boats donated. We got some of the waiters donated. Um, so I do think the number one is donate, donate to Nelly's org, donate to Four Piece, because like Ukrainians, they don't waste that money. Um, and you know, when we get like a list where there's a budget, we still find ways to reduce the price. So that would be my thought: is find direct local volunteer groups in Ukraine and donate.
2: And what's yeah, the best for, way I'll to work. find those groups if you're from outside? I mean, uh, it I it sounds like it might job. be a problem, you know.
0: I think helping to leave is a good one. Um, for peace works directly with Ukrainians on the ground.
2: Okay. And Nelly, you want, uh, wanted to say something too.
0: Yeah. Like uh,
1: the way how we are getting money, it's donations and also grants. We have, uh, for example, grants for uh, patients with um, with oncological, with cancer. Uh, with different kinds of cancers and we try to find some clinics uh, that will start to treat them immediately or like very fast or the countries that will uh, provide them the the best treatments and as soon as possible after arriving and also like those money are going for the evacuation of these people sometimes because even we uh, we do the evacuation uh, to europe But um, like sometimes uh, people need like medical assistance. They need to be evacuated um, in an ambulance and it's like it's way more expensive. So, yeah. So sometimes we use the grants. Sometimes we use donations. But two things that I think every organization that works uh, in Ukraine uh, needs its people and money because money is great. But if no one can do this job. You cannot do anything.
2: Well, I want to thank you both for coming on Angry Planet and taking us through all this.
0: Thank you for hosting. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Medell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.